generally, it's been a privilege to do uh, wedding ceremonies. Always enjoyable. There's something about wedding funerals that seems to bring out the best and the worst of people and families. And I, I wish I, I, I don't even know how many weddings I've performed. I've kind of lost track. It would take me a while back and figure them out. Um, I know that there have been uh, a lot of interesting situations happen. And I can't begin to tell you the story, different times that you know we've had missing rings or missing marriage licenses or the time we uh, were all ready to sign the wedding register and all we had was a yellow highlighter. Um, different things. There have been some tension too and some of the havoc that uh, parents can wreak on weddings is uh, not so pretty. But the one story I was thinking about today as we talk about as we're going back into the book of Ephesians and looking at what God says about marriage is uh, an encounter I had uh, recently with two um, students that Luann and I both knew through my connections with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and, and someone that Luann had taught at Red River College. Um, it was interesting. This couple was from Southern Manitoba, and if you're familiar with Southern Manitoba, uh, many of the folks there have a particular view on things, and that's generally good, but it's, it can be a fairly conservative area. So, in the part of the premarital counseling, it's part of the deal, if you, if you want me to do your wedding, you gotta endure or uh, sit through uh, several conversations about marriage. And as we were getting ready, the first time we sat down, the young woman stared me right in the eyes and says, okay, Rick, I want to know about this submit stuff. Oh, you have an agenda for the meeting. That's great. And I did, I pulled what I call a Billy Graham. You know, a Billy Graham, whenever he gets asked a question, he says, the Bible says. So I thought, okay, let's just turn to the book of Ephesians and see what the Bible says. We'll get to that in a minute. But before, uh, I just want to get you thinking about that. There are a lot of controversy over what Christian marriage should be like or could be like and so on. Um, but before we get started, um, I want to briefly talk about three views of marriage. First of all, the ancient culture, the, the, the culture that the Bible was written in. You've got to remember when we're reading the Bible, we're reading someone else's mail, pretty much. Ephesians was written by uh, Paul, who was a church planner, to uh, a church in, in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And he had a specific agenda. I mean, God had so inspired this writing that it was spread around the Mediterranean and became part of the canon, part of the Bible. He wanted us to read it and study it because it was God's word speaking to his people. And as you know, if you've been paying attention for the past several weeks, you know that Ephesians is all about God's desire for his people to become a new family, a new community, right? With all kinds of values. Uh, but that ancient culture at that time, the culture of marriage was much different from God's agenda. For example, in the Jewish culture, um, it's been reading, as I was studying for this, uh, I noticed one commentator said, uh, a Jewish man would pray every morning, Lord, I thank you for not making me a slave or a Gentile, that's a non-Jew, or a woman. 
Um, and in Jewish culture, the woman had no rights. In Greek culture, it was even worse. Women were expected to maintain the household, raise the legitimate children that the father provided, and basically be quiet and stay out of the way. While the husband just did whatever he wanted. And if he wanted a little action on the side, so to speak, that was perfectly acceptable in that culture. Roman culture and its attitude towards marriage was even worse, and women were basically bond slaves to their, their husbands. There wasn't a lot of space for, there was no space, really, for equality in that relationship. Let's fast forward to uh, our cultures, uh, contemporary cultures, uh, attitude towards marriage. Everyone seems to be looking for Mr. Right or Mrs. Right. And if the uh, ancient culture was kind of a consumer culture, where you'd often marry for advantage, you would arrange marriage so that it would boost your family's fortunes and the income in, in the future, today's attitude towards marriage is just as consumeristic because you're shopping, you're presenting your best self, you're marketing yourself, and you're looking at other people's images and you're hoping that it's a good match and we're looking at the other person to meet all our needs. We have that expectation, whether we state it or not. And all the great Hollywood romances will come up with lines like, you complete me, which is okay. I don't want to sound old and cynical, but it, it's a nice thought. And romance is great. And literally, when we first fall in love, our, our brains aren't working properly. That's what scientists tell us. They're not working like they regularly do, which is great. It's a great burst of euphoria. But then you decide to get married and make a life together and the grind of life and kids and responsibilities and bills, it just kind of drags you down. All of a sudden you don't feel uh, completed anymore. And so there's a lot of cynicism about marriage. And it's become... Uh, what can I get out of this relationship? I'm not getting enough out of this relationship. Therefore, I'm walking and I'm trying again. I'm trading in this model for a new one. And maybe the next time around, I'll have more success. I'll know what I'm looking for. So it's still very much a kind of a business transaction idea. Um, people are saying, what can you bring to this relationship? And if you have a lot of money, You'd be foolish not to sign a prenuptial agreement to protect your assets, so to speak. Well, that doesn't sound like a really attractive proposition. And I will say one more thing about marriage these days. One of my pet peeves is the wedding industry. It's one of my pet peeves. Because so much emphasis is put on the event, the day, very little thought of the aftermath. What happens after you put away the swans and decorations and all the doves have been released and the string quartet goes home? I'm all about a great party, okay? But the thing is, people don't put very much thought or planning into what's going to happen six months down the road or six years down the road or maybe even 60 years down the road. So, without sounding uh, like a cynical, grumpy old preacher, I'd like to dive into what Ephesians says about biblical marriage. 
Because that is fascinating. And it's beautiful. And it can even be sexy. Okay, let's go on. Uh, now I got your attention. Remember, what did we talk about last week? What did we talk about last week? Come on, don't break my heart, people. What did we talk about last week here in this? The Holy Spirit instilled. The Holy Spirit, what? Instilled. Instilled, okay. The Holy Spirit. What was the sermon title? What was the graphic on the page? What do you, yeah, well, what do you follow? Exactly, what do you follow, okay? And we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit of Jesus, His love and power flowing through us so we can do the things that He's called us to do. Okay? That's important to think of. Keep in mind, all right, being filled with the Spirit of Jesus. As we go into this section, because we're going to talk about the most intimate of human relationships. All right? So going right down from this whole glorious section about, yeah, keep on being filled. Let yourselves keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul told his friends. And then he continues, and he said, and further, and another thing, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Put each other first. Okay? Because of your love for Jesus, if you're going to be a spiritual family, Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And that's the passage I started off this bride-to-be from southern Manitoba who's kind of antagonistic and skeptical about this whole submission thing. I said, let's read the book of Ephesians in its proper context. And I started with this verse. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In fact, the way it's written there's not a period at the end of Christ. It, it's a, it, it, it continues on. I told you before, Brother Paul liked run-on sentences. He wasn't into periods and commas a whole lot. He just kept going. But the whole point of this, it's really important grammatically because this is the most important sentence in the paragraph. It's kind of like the topic sentence. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Keep that in your heads as you read the rest of instructions about Christian marriage. Okay? Have an attitude like Jesus of a servant and put other people first. Alright? That helps set the tone for uh, what a Christian marriage is supposed to look like and how revolutionary it is. Paul continues, For wives this means to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of his body, the church. And the church submits to Christ. So as the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Stay with me, okay? For husbands, this means love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave his life up for her to make her holy and clean. Washed by the cleansing of God's word, he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it, 
just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of his body. Man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, that's quite a mouthful, and I'm sure some of you are just itching to dive into this. What exactly does it mean? Well, let's deal with this stuff head on. What does it mean to uh, this whole submission thing? Again, the, the topic sentences to this paragraph is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Put each other first. Have that kind of attitude. And Paul goes on, after this section about marriage, he talks about parents and kids, he talks about employers and employees, all those close, intimate relationships that we have with other people. He's with other people. And he's writing in context to this group of Christians scattered around the Mediterranean, and he says, I want you to have the same attitude towards other people that you have, that Jesus has to you. Submit to each other. Put each other first. Now, what does it mean? I'm going to come back to submission for a minute, but what does it mean when it says the, uh, the husband is the head of the wife? For wives, it means submit to husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now, this verse has been used to dominate and bash women in the church for centuries. And that's just plain wrong. It's a really bad interpretation. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about Jesus being the head of the church. Um, if you remember that. Um, but... Speaking the truth in love, it says in Ephesians 4, we will grow to become and respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its own work. In this passage, in this context, the headship of Jesus over the church implies care for the body, not control. We look at this word head, like head office, you know, wherever the head office is, all the subsidiary offices have to do what they're told. And everybody in the subsidiary offices hate the people in the head office. They blame it on, you know, well, it's Toronto is telling us to do it. You know, that it's that attitude, right? Um, I used to work with an organization where the head office was in Toronto. And we blame Toronto for everything, even though there's... It wasn't the city's fault or whatever. It was just that kind of attitude. We were we had this image of the head controlling us like uh, marionettes. That wasn't actually true. It was just our, our wrong perception of it. But in this context, the head does not mean an authoritarian dictatorship or a tyranny. It's all about care and not control. It's about responsibility, not ruling. Do you understand? Providing for. Jesus provides for the church and loves the church and cares for the church. And that's what it means for Jesus to be the head of the church. 
So any smart husband or anyone who aspires to be a smart husband here today or is listening to this online will pay attention to the image of Jesus and his example and love and care for his wife. In fact, I'm going to continue talking about the responsibility of husbands for a while, and then we'll put the, this whole submission thing into uh, proper context. Did anyone notice how often Paul tells husbands to love their wives? Let's uh, run through the passage again. Let's have a wee Bible study here this morning. For husbands, this means to... What's that word? Okay, all the guys... For husbands, this means to love. Uh, that's a good manly response. Good. Love. Yeah, okay. Love your wives. As Christ of the church, he gave up his life for her, keeping her holy and clean. Uh, etc. etc. Let's see where else is that. In the same way, men, husbands ought to love. Good job, guys. Their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the body, and we are members of his body. Okay. Oh, middle through, uh, middle of the passage here. So again I say, each man must his wife as he himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Guys, you probably haven't said the word love so much in a long time. I'm feeling the love. Aren't you feeling the love? Why does Paul literally beat it in the heads of his listeners? Because in that culture, and often in our culture, men need to be reminded to love their wives, to look after them, to be tender and care about them. Right? I'm not going to talk too much about male and female stereotyping. We all know about that. That may not be helpful today. But the basic challenge in a Christian marriage is the man to love his wife like Christ loves the church. As Jesus is dying on the cross and he's looking at a few people that have hung around to see it through to the bitter end, and he's looking down at the Roman soldiers who are actually torturing him to death, he's looking at them with love. Not sentimentality. He's not looking at these human beings and saying, You complete me. You're so awesome. You've got so much to offer me in this relationship. I can't wait to be together and spend the rest of my life. He's saying, I love them. And Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But I love them anyway. Guess what, guys? Here's the good news. As Christian husbands, we're commanded, not suggested, but commanded to love our wives like Jesus loved the church. And if you love yourself, you take care of yourself, then you love your wife. If you don't love yourself, with God's help, you'll learn to love yourself so you can love your wife properly. But that's what we're called to do. Now, well, ladies, if you're married to a Christian man here, if your man is trying with God's help to love you like Jesus loved the church, 
What's your response? Love him back. Love him back. Yeah, that would be a good thing. Love him back. And submission does not mean subjugation or being dominated. It's about a voluntary, free, joyful, and thankful partnership. Let me read that again. Submission is all about a voluntary, free, joyful, and thankful partnership. Because we're supposed to submit to each other and love each other and try to bring out the best in each other. That's what it's about. Basically, Christian marriage is like a spiritual friendship where two friends, spiritual friends, connect together and they say, God, help us to bring the best out of each other. And it's similar. Have you ever seen one of those A-frame cottages or A-frame um, cabins? In, in Manitoba, we don't have cottages. We have cabins, right? So it's, it's an A-frame structure like this. You got it's the, the bottom is in a foundation. The foundation is God. But the two sides lean into each other and they actually support each other. That's what a Christian marriage is supposed to look like. Where we lean into each other and support each other. It's almost never easy. But it's worth pursuing. I want to tell you a story today of a Christian, a story of a Christian marriage that was really based on a spiritual friendship. There is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. Martin Luther. Martin Luther and Katerina Mangora were married in 1525. Martin Luther, if you remember, was the man God used principally to start the Reformation, reforming the Catholic Church. There had been a lot of abuses. So the, the church had really gone off the rails. They had even resorted to selling, basically selling spots in heaven to finance their building programs. Just a lot of corruption. A lot of things have gone way off track. Even though there was still a remnant of good things going on, uh, a lot of priests were really frustrated. And Martin, who, by the way, was converted, almost scared into heaven, by a violent thunderstorm. He was returning one day. He was going to be, he was practicing to be a lawyer, like his dad. And this violent thunderstorm happens, and he says, Jesus, save me. If, if I survive this, I'll join the church. I'll be a priest. And he survived, and he kept his word in being a priest. It's interesting. But Mark was really concerned about all the corruption going on in the church, and he, he wrote a, a list of 95 points or issues that he had with the church, Nailed it to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and that started the whole ball rolling. He wasn't too preoccupied about getting married, but he was helping different people um, adapt and, and deal with the fallout of the church. And one of the things he did was he helped 12 nuns escape from a convent. Because in those days, they did single women or women without families didn't have a lot of options. And uh, these 12 nuns wanted to get out of the nunnery and be free to marry and go on, but they're basically confined there. In fact, the tradesmen who smuggled them out of the nunnery, they all could have been executed if they'd been caught. One of the nuns was Katerina von Bora. Okay, 
So Martin works at finding everybody brides and husbands and getting together. And uh, Katerina is turning down all the suitors. She says, I'm not going to marry anybody but Martin or his assistant. It's like a little bit taken aback. Eventually, to make a long story short, at age 42, Martin proposes to Katerina, who's 28. And that same day, they're married. Boom. Not a long engagement. They just get her done. So, they got married. And what happened next is just absolutely fascinating. Uh, one of Martin's closest friends uh, was really worried that this would throw off the whole Reformation. It would be scandalous to have this ex-monk marrying this ex-nun. Uh, but Martin would have None of it, sorry, I couldn't resist that. I, I, okay, this would be the only bad joke today. Okay. He would have none of that. And do you know what he said? Actually, when he got married, his father thought it was a really good idea. And, I, and a lot of other significant leaders thought it would be a good idea. And this is what Martin said. Martin, Martin decided that his marriage would please his father, rile the Pope, cause the angels to laugh and the devils to weep. So, the former monk and the former nun got married. And as I said, the proposal and wedding were on the same day. By all accounts, it was an affectionate and happy marriage. Martin wrote that he loved waking up to see pigtails on the pillow next to him. Well, it was a tremendous shock to get used to after 42 years of singlehood. He also admired uh, Katerina. He called her, her his Kate. Kate's intellect, she was so bright and so sharp and kind of feisty. They often butted heads together. But they loved each other passionately. And they grew into that, they really grew into a deep spiritual friendship. Kate had six children, ran the household. Martin wasn't much of an organizer. He was, he was more of an intellectual, but he wasn't good at the practical hands-on stuff. So he delegated the whole household responsibilities to Kate, who ran the business, Brewed the best beer in town, according to all the uh, biographers I could find, and uh, ran basically a student hostel. They had six children of their own. They adopted another four orphans. It was a huge household, and Kate managed it very well. Martin was so in love with her, so grateful for her. His favorite book in the New Testament was the book of Galatians, which is, if you've read it, it's all about escaping legalism and rules to encounter a living faith with Jesus. In his uh, introduction to that book, he says, this is the most beautiful book of the New Testament. It is my Katerina von Bora. And there were some times he wrote in his writings, I almost put, I have to be careful not to put Kate ahead of Jesus. She's so valuable to me. But I've got to remember, it's Jesus first. That's what we felt. They butted heads a lot. There were uh, some really tempestuous times. Um, and Luther wrote at one time, Good God, what a lot of trouble there is in marriage. Adam has made a mess of our nature. Think of all the squabbles Adam and Eve must have had in the course of their 900 years together. <laughs> Eve would say, You ate the apple. And Adam would retort, you gave it to me. <laughs> Kate's patience would run dry as well. Sometimes she would, she would snap at Martin. Said, doctor, why don't you just stop talking and eat? Because they were hosting all these students. 
at the meal table all the time and they're asking all these theological discussions. And Martin just snapped back, I wish that women would repeat the Lord's Prayer before ever opening their mouths. But they realized their need for each other, their love for each other, and they worked it out. After a day with children and animals and servants, Kate just wanted to talk with an equal. And Martin, after preaching four times, lecturing and talking with students at meals, just wanted to drop into a chair and disappear into a book. And then Kate would start in with her questions. Martin knew that his patience was hard to find at times. He once said, all my life is patience. I have to have patience with the Pope, the heretics, my family, and my Kate. But as his biographer rightly observes, Martin recognized that it was good for him. Again, marriage and family was a school of character. Despite the hardship of daily life, Martin loved Kate enormously, and he knew that marital love grows stronger over time. The first love is drunken, he says. When the intoxication wears off, then comes the real marriage love. And again, Luther wrote, Union of the flesh does nothing. There must also be a union of manners and mind. Now, that was almost 500 years ago. But to me, that's a good model of a spiritual friendship. How two people, very different backgrounds, very different agendas in some ways, that God built them together into a loving relationship because they were serving each other. They were submitting each other and loving each other. And Martin and Kate's marriage served as a great, powerful example to the Christian church of what, what a Christian marriage should and could look like. I like this final quote of Martin's. Let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. Do you get that? If your spiritual friendship is going well, if there's this underlying love from God for each other, then the husband will be glad to come home and the wife will be sorry to see him leave. Now I know in our society, both people are out generally working. So take that in. This is 500 years ago. But the principles are the same. Some of us can't wait to get out of the house. And some of us dread the partner coming home. Now, if you feel that way in your marriage, there's no condemnation here. Okay? Maybe it's just an occasion to pray. Um... I mean, maybe you can relate to the statement and maybe not. And it can really vary from day to day. But if you can't relate to this statement and you don't want your spouse to come home or you can't wait for them to leave, and God wants you to know that His grace is here for you. You never stay in an abusive relationship. You don't. You don't have to. God's not saying that. And I'm not saying that. But if there's tension and frustration and hurt, let's pray for our marriages together, okay? Why am I spending so much time talking about marriage? Tim Keller, who planted a church in Manhattan uh, a couple of decades ago, has written a fantastic book called 
the, the gift of marriage. And he wrote it even though his congregation was 70 to 80% single people because he knew that his congregation needed to learn about marriage and God's ideal for marriage and what it's meant to be. Two spiritual friends leaning into each other and basing their relationship on God. So maybe you can relate to this, maybe you can. But what I'd like you to, us to do this morning is pray for the marriages represented here today and future marriages, okay? Let's pray. Father, those of us who are married today need your help and your grace in our relationships. We want to model the love that Jesus has for us to each other. And those of us who aren't married, Father, maybe recovering from a broken relationship or hope, hoping to get into another one, we're not sure. I pray that you would help us to find our ultimate satisfaction comes from Jesus, whether we're married or not. And I pray for the marriages and families represented here that you will support them and heal them and help them to flourish. This the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.